This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Push. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we take your uh, thorniest maintenance problems and we do our (laughs) best to solve them. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but we have a lot of fun doing it. So if you have a question, please send it to... uh, podcasts at aopa.org that's podcasts at aopa.org and we will schedule you to be on the show and if you like the show make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcast because it's nice to have something where you can be wrong half the time and still have a job (laughs) like the weatherman like the weatherman if you'd like to get on our email list for our um our monthly newsletter and 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 some interesting um real-life maintenance stories. Easiest way to do that is to pick up your smartphone and text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little bot will ask you for your email address and put you on the list. That's text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on our list. So, Mike, you were talking about uh, a spreadsheet that you keep for your ADs to track um, how you've complied with them and and what the status of all your ADs are. I thought that was pretty cool. I do something like that too. Yeah, I I, um, put together that spreadsheet uh, not that long ago when I realized that that the um, AD summary that I had been keeping uh, was not fully compliant with uh, the requirements of uh, FAR 91.417. There's sort of a weird thing in the regulations where owners are required to keep a bunch of information about airworthiness directives, especially uh, recurring ones, including, you know, when when the the next compliance uh, is due, what method was used to comply with the AD, quite a, quite a bit of information. There's there's actually no regulation requiring mechanics to write that stuff down but there is regulation requiring owners to keep it. And I realized that the maintenance records I'd been keeping, uh, at least the AD summary, did not have all that information in it. And so to dig it out, you'd have to go through lots and lots and lots of logbook entries. So I decided to to create an AD summary for my aircraft in the form of an Excel spreadsheet that, uh, that covered all of the bases to be compliant with the regulation and it uh, came out uh, came out kind of nice. Then I actually shared it with the thirty IAs that we have involved on the savvy team, and we got into a really vigorous discussion about <laughs> yeah. the, the 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 fact that at the bottom of this spreadsheet, after all of the permanently complied with ads and and the uh, one time ads that. The, or, or the not not applicable ads there were recurring ads and then at the very bottom um i had a signature and we got into a big debate about whether 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 an ad summary should should have an ia signature on it or not and uh we sort of came to the conclusion that the the signature should not say that all of those ads were complied with but should say that the summary, I've checked that the summary is accurate. So that's what my signature now says at the bottom of that uh, of that spreadsheet. 
I actually have a another spreadsheet that I keep for my airplane that I've kept for a long time, and, and that is an equipment list, a detailed equipment list, which also serves as my weight and balance document. And it's in it's it's an Excel spreadsheet, and it includes everything in the airplane, not only everything in the airplane, but everything that was in the airplane that's been taken out of the airplane, and uh, winds up calculating the. Uh, uh, the weight and balance. So anytime I make a change to equipment, install a piece of avionics or remove a piece of avionics and put another piece in, I, I just update the spreadsheet and and automatically I, I, I have an updated weight, of ba- weight and balance that becomes part of my maintenance records. And that one has a signature at the bottom too, because I think I think weight and balance has to have a, a signature. I see your your spreadsheet has a quantity, and there's a lot of twos there. That's one of the problems with having a twin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't have that problem. <laughs> yeah, there there are a lot of twos on my airplane. It's got way too many parts. <laughs> yeah, I have a similar installed equipment list, but it's not um, for weight and balance purposes. It's more for when an AD comes out, I can very quickly reference my list and see if I have that component with that serial number installed at a certain date. And that's a lot of times the AD just clears you by those two things. So it's a quick reference for me to keep track of what I've got on the airplane and how much time and service it has and when it was installed. And I even keep track of how much I paid for the item Sometimes it's depressing when I'm replacing my <laughs> that, vacuum pump. That's why you see. should not record how much things cost. I know. Don't I write know. that stuff down. If you well, don't write it down, it's like calories. It doesn't count. Yeah, uh-huh. I know. It is interesting, though. It's it's kind of fun to see how the airplane has evolved over the years. I've got tabs for avionics instruments, airframe stuff, even down to breakers and light bulbs and instruments when they were overhauled. It it. It's interesting to see how the airplane has matured through the years, hopefully gracefully. Um, but but it's useful for research. I bet it's fun, you know, like when you have to replace the battery every five years that you get to look and say, wait a how minute. How much time? Last yeah. time I bought this thing, it was only <laughs> half as much. As half as much. Now. Again, yeah. you should not write down the price. Well, so going to price, I do have another spreadsheet that I didn't provide to Ian, so he wouldn't show it. And that is my cost <laughs> per flight hour calculation spreadsheet. Oh, God. Oh, no. And it's like an electronic logbook, but I don't track where I went. I just track hours and then money that I put into the airplane. So I, you know, every time I have a hangar cost or insurance, I put that on there, fuel. And it calculates my cost per hour wet and dry, and I track that year by year. So I've got 30 years of data and that's depressing. Um, I track, you know, fuel prices. What's my average dollars per gallon that I'm getting? Uh, no, dollars per yeah, dollars per gallon or dollars per hour even. So that's like a, a more airplane sensitive number. And uh, those costs have been going up a lot. And this conversation got really dark yeah, Paul, really fast. How, well, how long have we like, known Colleen? <laughs> and and. Well, I love you numbers. Know, all of a sudden, <laughs> right. we realized she's got this masochistic streak that has never come out. Yeah, I'm telling you, goodness. I did not know this. Well, when I first bought the airplane, I wanted to justify that I should own it versus oh, renting it by looking door. at the cost. Oh, and no. initially, it was, and when I first got my AMP, it was pretty darn good. But lately, it seems like I had a long stretch of, you know, keeping my cost down. And then lately, I've just been, you know, upgrading or because things catch up with you, right? You, you let things slide for a long time and then you're finally like, okay, I need to do the interior. It's a mess or I'm going to redo my panel. And all of a sudden you've sunk a lot of money into the airplane and now you have to pay more taxes on it because it's value went up. It's, it's kind of a, a vicious cycle, but. Well, see, you're in California. That's that's the tax problem. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, you it realize if, 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 if general aviation aircraft owners use the, the J word, they would all sell their airplanes. We, we, we're, yeah. we can't. The, there's only know, one way to justify it. You can't justify it. Because you, oh. you love flying, you know? And Yeah. Our first question is from Dale, who needs some advice before he writes that big check to the engine shop. Go ahead, Dale. Yes, thank you, group, for all the expertise that each of you collectively represent. I'm looking to get some guidance on thoughts for engine replacement. 
which I know cuts against Mike's uh, advocacy of the year. So I will acknowledge, Mike, <laughs> that I have binge watched uh, much of your content up to and including the risk curve, uh, oh. infant mortality and end curve of some of your teachings. So I admit that I'm thinking about some of the things you've said, but nonetheless, the question sort of remains. But you're going to ignore all that and go go anyway. Okay, I, mean, I just want to just want to know where we are. So when the question does remain, if a person were to pull that uh, very ugly trigger of of the checkbook and replace an engine or engines in this case, what are the things to consider among some of the classic categories of factory new, factory remanufactured? A uh, major overhaul from sort of a leading national shop, a local shop, and top overhaul is probably a different consideration. But when replacing an engine on uh, engines on a Seneca, which of those categories uh, is best, and what should I consider? How much money you got? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I knew that best. was going to come out. <laughs> how, how do we what have your, to define yeah. what best means? I mean, what what. Mm-hmm. What uh, what are the priorities here? What's your criteria? The criteria in part was based upon perhaps an interest in upgrading to the 220 horsepower Continental TSIO 360 KB mm-hmm. in the process. But I understand that that doesn't really improve uh, true airspeed necessarily. It does perhaps in- improve climb. But the criteria, I think, would be value for operations, reliability. Um, Certainly, I say resale is always in the back of someone's mind, but I don't think you purchase these with the intent to sell. I'm not a flipper, if that's the term. Uh, And I don't think that that functions in any event. The criteria would be sort of reliability and performance. Elaborate on what you mean by reliability, because, because clearly, if you have good running engines and you tear them apart it's not going to improve the reliability it's it's going to put you in well it depends on where you are on the curve right right but he's 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 worried he's 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 in the middle he's right around tbo he's a little under tbo one engine a little over tbo on the other engine but great spot um, to be yeah actually but but i mean it it certainly doesn't make sense to be tearing apart an engine for reliability I, th- I think your first question has to be, do you want the 220 horse engines? And if you don't, if you decide that that's not the big deal, then you have a whole conversation about overhauling. And then, well, you already know all the answers to that because we've talked about it and you've been watched all the stuff. Our recommendation would be to leave the engines on the airplane and keep flying them. But if you want the 220 horse engine, it's more subjective. So what's resale value worth? Well, you have to go on to trade a plane or somewhere controller and find out what the difference is in the prices of similar airplanes. And if you upgrade to the 220 horse engine, I think you're going to be real limited because your engines may not be available as cores, which makes it difficult because it's a different engine, a very different engine. So there's going to be additional cost, is what you're saying? There's going to be additional cost, more than likely. And you may not be able to get in the 220, you may be limited to getting a new engine or a factory remand because you don't have a core to send out for overhaul. Paul, explain that to me. I wasn't under the impression that those engines were radically different. I thought they were they basically had different different turbocharging systems on them. Well, he's talking about going to a KB. And there are sometimes, depending on where you're getting the engine, they see that as a different engine. And they're... I'm just saying there may be issues with the core value of the engine that you're taking off. The factory would take it back as a core. Probably. I mean, I'm not as I'm not a Seneca guy. Don't shoot me. So Okay. I mean, let, let's 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 start from the standpoint that this is a horrible time to get an yeah, engine exactly. because <laughs> the lead times are so long. So yeah. you're voluntarily putting yourself on the beach for a long time. And you need to have an awfully good reason to do that. I wouldn't overhaul an engine now. If I could avoid it, I would wait until the supply chain issues resolve some more. 
another possibility w- would would be to 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 put a, a rebuilt engine on order and then just fly for the next eight months until it shows up <laughs> Year and, and, then pull, and then pull the <laughs> yeah. engines uh something you, you you can't do if you do a field overhaul yeah okay just, since you have two engines i i personally think it's a great idea to do them one at a time yeah and and he's putting an artificial constraint on that by saying he wants to upgrade to the 220 horsepower engines because right I don't think you can do those one at a time. <laughs> oh, that's true. I, I could be wrong. <laughs> well, well, see, I would have started with, I probably wouldn't do the upgrade just personally. I I would keep the engines I have and fly them for another hundreds of hours. You know? Yeah, I have learned since initially reaching out to ask A&P uh, that the performance, uh, true airspeed at all altitudes on the 220 or the existing, as you said, Paul, correctly, the EBs or the KBs the, is the same. And frankly, mm-hmm. yeah. if you go with a three-bladed propeller on the KB, uh, most indications are that it's actually slower mm-hmm. uh, slightly yeah. uh, in true airspeed with the three-bladed propeller, which is sort of required or suggested with the KB. So it does beg the question. You're exactly right. Well, so ask Colleen how much horsepower, as the race plane person that she is, it takes an awful lot of horsepower to get any appreciable change in airspeed. No, not, not horsepower, money. Money. <laughs> <laughs> it's all dollars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we call it micronauts. <laughs> yeah. So so adding in 10% extra horsepower Doesn't isn't going to really, give you much yeah, on Just cruise. the climb performance. It's going to help your climb and takeoff performance, but that's pretty much it. Right. Okay. Say, group, if I were to distill, thank you for your guide, because your guide does simplify the question. You're exactly right. It's kind of educational. Uh, so thank you. If you were to simplify, perhaps sort of the, the lighter question, then if money or the cost wasn't a factor, if you were replacing, let's just say one engine, and you could just select what you'd like to have show up at your shop or your hangar, would you like a factory new, a factory manufactured? or an overhaul from a well-known shop? I like bright, shiny, new. <laughs> my, my general rule is if the engine that you have has treated you well, I would consider field overhauling it. If the engine you have has been a lemon or if it if it has some known issue like a case crack or, 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 or something that that would result in an upcharge in a field overhaul, I would consider uh, a factory engine. You certainly have a lot more control over what you get if it's a field overhaul, because you pretty much can spec it out the way you want. If you want, you know, superior cylinders on it, or if you want powder coated cases or, you know. Because that makes them fly better. Right. If you uh, paint the crankcase red or blue or black, it's way better. Crumb, crumb. If, if you have the chrome. option of, of you know, putting S twelve hundred mags on there instead of uh, slicks, or you, whereas if you order it from the factory, you're pretty much stuck with what they're building to, that day. Is there any truth, Mike, Paul, and Colleen, to the port and polish? A commentary for an overhaul, the opportunities you have for that. Is there any meaningful improvement available there? Or is that? It sounds cool. And the race, co- the race community likes it. I've always thought it was pretty much a waste of time. It's probably not worth the money that it costs for a regular user. Yeah. I mean, but it does sound cool. No, it was a really good question. And we'll, we'll, we'll help you keep those things going as long as they're healthy. Yeah, hopefully yeah. you'll stay with those engines because they're reliable. It sounds like they've yeah. been serving you well. That That is the safest way to go. Okay, well, thank you for the information from a 360 perspective. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dale. Thanks for your knowledge. Okay, take See care. Ya. Bye. So our next question is from Jim, who is having a problem with his mighty warbird. Go ahead, Jim. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you all. I really enjoy the podcast and learn a great deal from them. My question relates to fuel mixture management in my poor man's warbird, which is a 1943 Aronka L3 grasshopper equipped with a Continental A75. 
when I purchased the airplane, it had the Stromberg carburetor with no mixture control. So mixture management was really simple. You just didn't. But as Strombergs are prone to do, especially on tail draggers, the carburetor routinely dripped fuel and created flooding problems. So I, even after we rebuilt it, so I switched to a Marvel Shebler, which works great and solved the drip problem, but it in- introduced a new element. Uh, I now have a mixture control, so I now have the previously unavailable option to lean the mixture. The airplane has no electrical system, so an engine monitor isn't an option and wouldn't be period correct for this antique anyway. <laughs> so my oh, CFI and AMP buddy explained to me and demonstrated in flight that one of the challenges in attempting to lean the mixture on these little continentals is that you don't usually get an onset of roughness to let you know when it's time to stop pulling and start pushing. Instead, the engine rather abruptly just tries to quit. So with no electrical system, and I have to rely on the Armstrong method to start the engine, an in-flight shutdown is not wonderful. So the typical response when you get that onset of silence is to push immediately, and then you've kind of lost track of where you'd pulled to. So before I read Mike's article on the red box, I would just lean a little bit, thinking that a little, a little bit of leaning was better than none. And uh, now I'm beginning to wonder if that's not a good idea. And so you all might have some suggestions for how I might lean this little engine. Well, gosh, I really wanted to go into the speech about an engine monitor. <laughs> <laughs> not here. Is the mixture control period appropriate or does that kind of mess up the whole? Uh, he tried to skip past that. Well, okay, you, you've caught me. I'm not entirely period correct, but uh, but I thought that the mixture control would disturb things a, a little bit less than something else. And I don't have an electrical system, so I couldn't put the engine monitor in anyway. Is it a vernier mixture control, or is it uh, just a push-pull thing? Just push-pull. Okay. Does the prop actually stop? Have you ever gotten that far with that no, compression? No. I haven't had the con- the courage to see what would really happen all the way. As soon as it stumbles, and it and it doesn't just really stumble, it pretty much tries to quit, uh, and then I'll, mm-hmm. I'll enthusiastically push back. Because I was thinking whether or not you had a wooden prop or a metal prop, um, that engine with that low compression might, with a wooden prop, um, might not have enough inertia that, that it would need to stop. And you you might try this over an airport and see if the prop comes to a complete stop or just windmills. And I mean, and all we're trying minute, to do wait, is... Wait, wait, wait. I'm wait. supposed to be the one that, that suggests crazy things. Uh, <laughs> you, you, actually, you. this is my husband suggested this. He uh, was the first oh. person to say, I'll bet the prop doesn't even stop on that engine. It just windmills away. So ha- Haven't you seen the YouTube videos of the guy in the J3 that yeah. straps a rope on his belt and reaches out and hand props? Oh, my God. Yeah, I've seen the... But don't do that. <laughs> don't do <laughs> we're not that. suggesting that. No, we are not. A couple of comments come to mind. First of all, you don't really need to lean to roughness if that's a problem for you. If if the engine really just suddenly cuts off, what you really need to do is is lean to the onset of perceptible power reduction, which will occur as soon as the engine or or a number of cylinders on the engine start running on the lean side of peak. You don't really need to go all the way uh, to roughness if that's a problem for you. Now, leaning that subtly with a with with a simple push pull control is going to be a little challenging. A vernier control would give you finer the ability to 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 do it with more precision and not overshoot. But you could try just leaning to the onset of perceptible power loss as opposed to going all the way to roughness another comment and depending on how period inappropriate you want to be you you did say that it doesn't have an electrical system so an engine monitor is out of the question but you could if you really wanted to install an alcor egt gauge which doesn't require any power and is powered right off the thermocouple and you could probably hide it somewhere in the glove compartment or something if you <laughs> if you thought it was embarrassing to have one of those things. And that would give you a, a little more information on leaning. It's not not as much information as we'd like to see you have, but but those are the things that came to mind. It's it's an interesting issue to think about an airplane like that with, with without an electrical system. 
with the engine having being relatively low low performance low horsepower is it unlikely to get itself up into the red box anyway or is it possible that just by running it at full power which i'm doing right now as i'm breaking in uh cylinders uh and i'm keeping it full rich while i do that but could is it possible it can't get itself to the red box anyway that's what i thought when yeah, i read this with question it, with it full rich which is where it's been run all its its life anyway and you know, it's got so many built-in headwinds. Why would you ever want to pull the throttle back anyway? Just you know, <laughs> leave the thro- leave the throttle, the mixture full, rich, and fly it that way until you land. That's what I would do. Yeah. Well, <laughs> fuel is expensive, though. It would increase me from four and a half to five gallons an hour. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I <laughs> okay. mean, the, the airplane at five gallons an hour. My goodness, I, I think he does better than my lawnmower does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And looks better too. <laughs> it looks better. That's right. <laughs> you know, I mean, the the thing I would be more concerned about than, than than any of that is just what the combustion chamber looks like. Whether if, if there's a lot of deposit buildup and a lot of lead and stuff like that. That's probably the quickest answer to your question. Is there is no red box on your plane? I suspect. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and what I probably will do is get over the airport and see if I can't sort of find that spot where it starts yeah. to stumble a little more thoroughly than I have tried before. Uh, after one one or two panicked efforts, I decided to ab- abandon that. But I can probably do that and see if I can yeah. find the spot and and get used to where that appears on the mixture control. Of course, right? Yeah, I fly yeah. it at low altitudes. It's not I'm not much above or 4,000 feet MSL anyway. So. Exactly. So you're just trying to establish where to operate it and then you don't need to, you know, go farther than that in the future. You're just trying to develop some muscle memory on where it should be leaned. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and get that engine monitor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we just, just had to put that in there. No, yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> no, that's a great plane. What a lot of fun. Yep. Very much, you know, it's like the little old car to drive on Sunday afternoons. You don't challenge weather, you don't do anything, and you don't go anywhere fast. Jim, I appreciate the appreciate the question. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks much for y'all's insights as always. Take good care. Right. Enjoy. Bye bye. Our next question is from Dubs, who has a thought experiment about manifold pressure. We love thought experiments. Go ahead, Dubs. <laughs> Well, thank you. I, I, I've been flying. I, I retired five years ago, bought a Mooney, 42-year rusty pilot, started flying, and now have 420 hours in it. And I still don't understand how my manifold pressure is working when I am going up to altitude and, um, and starting to set up for cruise. So the manifold pressure is, can be reduced two ways. You pull the throttle, which interferes with the flow in the carburetor, and less air is getting through, or you go to altitude where the air is thinner. So my question is, when I take off, and I'm, I'm from the Sacramento Valley area, so when I take off, basically uh, uh, sea level, when I take off and start climbing, at 1,000 feet, I check my, uh, my EGT and fuel flow. And the EGT is about 1395, fuel flow 17.2. And as I climb, then I, I am actually leaning the engine as I climb to keep that EGT at about 1395. So at 2,000 feet, the fuel flow is down to 16.7. So I'm reducing the fuel flow as I climb, which I should. But when I level off at 6,500 feet, and let the plane settle down, drop the uh, prop back to 2,400 RPM. And then what I'll do is pull the mixture back so I can lean. I pull it back till the engine stumbles, and then just push it in till the engine doesn't stumble. Now I let the engine settle down. And what happens is I end up with a fuel flow of about 9.5 but my manifold pressure is down to 23 because I'm at altitude. So now I pull the throttle back. And as I pull the throttle back, nothing happens. I pull it back, not the throttle, I'm sorry, the, the manifold pressure. I pull the manifold pressure back. I pull it back, pull it back. And the manifold pressure needle doesn't start twitching until I pull it out of ways. And then 
I, I let it set. I, I set the, the actual lever at the same point at the 23 that I have naturally received my altitude. So the question is, I got two questions, because what happens when I do that is my fuel flow goes down. My temperatures come down, EGT, CHT, and my fuel flow comes down. When I pull that back, but the manifold pressure doesn't change. I pull the lever back to 23 inches. So I don't understand if I'm pulling that back and I'm reducing the airflow through the carburetor, as well as the airflow is being reduced because it's thinner, why hasn't the manifold pressure going down as soon as I pull the lever? And if it doesn't go down, why do my numbers drop? Fuel flow, temperatures, why are they dropping if the manifold pressure doesn't drop? I missed something here. What kind of engine is this? Yeah, it's an O360, carbureted O360. So it's an M20C? Uh, I actually have a G, which is the same as the C. It's just longer. Yeah, the long cabin, but the small engine. Do you uh, do you have the the Ram? And my dad was a, a Mooney mm-hmm. fan, a big major Mooney fan. Uh, does it have the Ram uh, air valve on the front? So it, at, once you get it, it doesn't have that. Okay. Do you still get Ram air effect at cruise? You get some. You do you get some. Yeah. But what you're talking about is something that bypasses the air filter and it bypassed the yeah. air filter, but it yeah. didn't put heat Which, in. My lens there has gives that, you about yeah. an, an inch, extra inch at least. or so. Yeah, yeah. it's just it's great. pretty helpful. So you're, and I'm just trying to get some understanding. When you get to altitude, you're saying you're pulling the throttle back to 23 inches of manifold pressure, but it's not changing. So, well, it's already at 23. It's already at 23 automatically. But as yeah. I pull the throttle back, it doesn't change until some point. Then it does change, and then I'll push it back into where it's at the 23, to where the throttle matches what it wants to be at anyway. And why do you do that? Yeah, why do you move the throttle why at cruise? Why throttle? do I do that? Yeah, why not yeah. wide open throttle? Because it because it re- I I did it once and my fuel flow went down, so I said, hey, I you know I I want to use less fuel. Don't you want to get there? <laughs> yeah. So the way. Well, no. Michael have my even... speed didn't change. I you yeah. know I did a uh, true airspeed calculation before doing that. It was 162 miles an hour, true airspeed. I pull that back until it matches the actual 23 that I've got already. My airspeed is still 162. Sure, but what you've done is you've changed the position of your of the butterfly valve in the carburetor, and but that won't change manifold pressure very much until suddenly it does. I mean, it'll it'll change the flow, but it's not being very restrictive. But it also does change the fuel flow as soon as you start pulling it back. I always leave my throttle full wide open and reduce the fuel flow with the mixture knob and not with the throttle knob. Okay, but but Paul, you're relating this to an injected engine, and he has a carbureted engine. Yeah, so he may and, have and, the and there is no there is no linkage between the throttle position and direct linkage throttle position well, and fuel flow. other than the, the airflow, which is sucking the fuel in. Yeah, the, the carburetor compensates for so the airflow. It's, it's changing the, the airflow, but maybe not, an, it's changing the uh, the velocity of the airflow. Well, you know, now that it, oh. it occurs to me, he he may have a carburetor that has an enrichment circuit in it. Right, that, like the 182s? Yeah, that does provide extra fuel flow at, at wide open throttle. Hmm. So Some that's carburetors have a have a, an enrichment circuit that does. So that. when you move the throttle initially, it's changing the mixture before it ends up changing the manifold yeah. pressure. Yeah, I bet that's what's going on. But even still, why wouldn't you just leave it full forward and adjust the mixture with the mixture control? Well, I do that, and I pull the mixture control till the engine stumbles, and then I have to enrich in the mixture to where the engine is smooth, and then at sure. that point, I'll pull the throttle until it actually switches the uh, the manifold pressure needle. That reduced my fuel flow from nine point five to nine point three. I see. So you get an added fuel flow reduction, but the engine doesn't stumble because you've you've changed. The airflow yeah. this time. Actually, at the same what he, time. What, what Dub is doing is 
excellent practice if you're flying a Cessna 182, which has miserable mixture distribution. And one of the things we found with the with those 0470s that have really bad mixture distribution where the rear cylinders run lean and the front cylinders run rich is that by pulling the, the throttle back just slightly to cock the throttle butterfly just a little bit, it, it introduces turbulence into the airflow through the carburetor and improves uh, fuel atomization and it makes the mixture distribution better. It's still not great, but it makes it better. Now, I, I wouldn't really expect there to be much of that effect in a Lycoming because the Lycomings have a pretty symmetrical better, induction yeah. system. Yeah, and he's not doing it for that reason. He's doing it because he wants fuel savings. But, you know, the I mean, if you think about what happens when you start tilting that throttle butterfly, it's very, very nonlinear. The, the first five or 10 degrees of tilt doesn't really have that much effect. And as, as it tilts further and further, it, it, it has an accelerated effect. It, you know, it would be linear if it was like a slide valve or something rather than a butterfly, but butterflies are, are very nonlinear in their effect on the airflow. It's like the, sticking the, your canoe paddle in the water and then feathering it. You can see it. it yeah. Initially, the the water will stick to the paddle, just like airflow yeah, over a exactly. wing. But then at some angle of attack, it starts to... Burp. Yeah, you get critical angle of attack. Right? <laughs> <laughs> your, I've never paddle. thought of it that way, but that's a good, that's a good <laughs> point. So I wonder if you, just as a, since we're thought experimenting here, if you began by pulling the, the throttle back before you do the mixture pull, pull the throttle back until you get that fuel flow change and just that little bit of manifold pressure change and push it back up and then pull the mixture back to roughness and leaning. If you end up at the same spot, I would assume you would. I've actually tried to do an additional leaning after I pull the throttle. Oh. I said, well, let me see if I can lean it again and get any difference. So I'll do that again. And as soon as I pull it out a little bit, the engine goes a little rough. I put it back in, check the numbers. So I'll, I'll continuously do that. Actually, every 10 or 15 minutes, I'll play with that, you know, as I'm flying along. I'm on a three-hour flight. I do that multiple times and just to it, check it. It doesn't change anything, I'm sure, but what else are you going to do? Well, great questions. Dubs, we appreciate the Thanks, call. Thanks, Dub. This is fun. This is Never stop fun, learning, yeah. Dubs. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. All right, our next question is from Philip, who did something good. He's just not sure what it is, but he apparently did something good. Go ahead, Philip. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. My question is this. So we are working with a customer as an experimental aircraft, and it has a Continental IO 520 and a three-blade Hartzell. Pretty high-performance setup. And he wasn't very happy with the takeoff and climb performance. And so after some conferring with prop shops, we adjusted the low pitch stop on the prop itself. Um, essentially, we backed the governor off until it was no longer governing the prop and then adjusted the stop to where the prop itself would hold the proper static RPM. Yeah. And then once that was adjusted, we put the governor back to redline. And so they're both holding the prop at redline. Yeah, and it good. seems to have made a difference. He gets better takeoff performance, climbs better. And in my mind, the governor always increases blade pitch to maintain a certain RPM. Right. And at full power, full manifold pressure, and redline, I would have thought that the blade angle would always be the same. However, that seems to have changed a little bit. So there's something I'm missing here. Did What changed, I guess, is my question. All right. I'm not sure I'm quite exactly sure what the question is, but I'll tell you something that we do. You can't do this easily on Macaulay, so you must be dealing with a Hartzell propeller. Well, we do the Vitito conversion on the Cessna 210, which puts a, a turbo-normalized IO550. And one of the processes of the STC is to do exactly what you did. You do static runs, and you take the prop governor out of the system by adjusting it you know, way high, and you adjust the low pitch stop 
to give you roughly the 2700 that you're looking for. It doesn't have to be exact. And the whole purpose is that when you, when you throttle up for takeoff, the engine will spool up to speed faster. As soon as you start moving forward, I call it unloading the prop. So if you don't do this, we see it on a lot of Columbia's where they'll take off and may not get full RPM until they're at 40 or 50 knots. And that's just a, a the low pitch stops are set at too high of a pitch. So you don't get the a full RPM until you're down the runway a bit. So doing what you did is a perfectly fine thing to do. It, it yields a much better takeoff performance because you get the power earlier in the takeoff roll and the prop governor does its exact job. The uh, So I, before we did the first one of these, I called our prop shop uh, over in Memphis and I said, so what is actually going on in this hub that I'm going to do? It's, you know, it's a screw with a jam nut. He said, well, the worst thing you can do is if you screwed all the way out in the jam nut and the screw fall on the ground and you go fly, <laughs> then the hub, the internal hub of the prop just hits the dome and that becomes its low pitch stop. So there's actually, you know, you're not doing any damage internal to the prop or anything. So you, you don't worry about that. So all that seemed to work, right? And what is it that you're saying changed that you're, you, you've, you fixed it? Yeah, I guess essentially it um, takes off quicker and climbs better. So I had thought that it seems like there's maybe more pitch in the prop on takeoff. Well, it's actually you're uh, initially it the blades are at a lower pitch. It would be less less pitch. Less pitch, <laughs> so the RPM comes up fast because the engine can turn the propeller easier. When it gets to twenty seven, so you're you're basically a fixed pitch propeller. So imagine a one seventy two. You go to full throttle, and you might get twenty three hundred RPM statically, but as you roll down the runway that RPM increases and increases because the airplane's now moving forward and it's easier for the prop to turn. It's the very same thing in this situation until you're going fast enough forward that the low pitch of the propeller might allow it to go past 2700. And that's when the prop governor kicks in and begins to increase the pitch to maintain that 2700 to keep it from exceeding that. Oh, okay. So essentially we just made so the power comes in sooner. Right. On takeoff. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes much more yeah. sense. Now you, you said you said that you adjusted the low pitch stop to uh, uh, obtain uh, rated static RPM. What what is that static RPM? Is it it's something less than twenty seven hundred? Uh twenty six fifty, does that sound right? Or okay, right around twenty seven hundred, yeah. Okay. I know we Anything. said it just a little bit low, just so it would get the, the full RPM once the takeoff roll was started. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to set it above 2700. We normally shoot for something around 2680, 2690. But anywhere in that range is good to let it, let it power up pretty quick. I always wondered why my RPM wasn't at redline when I started my roll. I, I accepted it because I knew it was normal operation, but mm -hmm. I, I wasn't quite sure why. By the time I'm at the end of the runway or climbing out, it seems to go up. And I guess I always thought it was just cold oil pressure, even though... Well, you, you have know. a Macaulay prop, right? Yes, I do. Yes. So if you ever send it out for a reseal, mm -hmm. it, you know, it has the, the low pitch stop. There's usually a range. And you can always ask them to set it to the lower value of the low pitch stop. And that'll help it accelerate, help the engine accelerate. So as long as the governor's working properly, you're saying it won't hurt it. Uh, no. it the governor will be the limiting factor, not the pitch on the prop. Exactly. That's what Got you it. want. You want the yeah. pro propeller to be the limiting factor on a static run. But as soon as the wheels start turning, let the prop governor be the limiting factor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's a good question. And the 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 stop in a in a Macaulay is internal to the hub, right? So you right. can't so it's I not can't do field it myself, adjustable, yeah. right? You don't have access to it. But it's basically just a safety device, right? If if there if there wasn't a low pitch stop and the governor was working correctly and 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 you had adequate oil pressure, you you really wouldn't need a low pitch stop. The governor would prevent the the prop from turning too fast, but. 
it's it's a safety device to make sure that the engine doesn't go into overspeed. But I can tell you, if someone misinstalls your prop governor and your prop governor doesn't do its job and you find out somewhere after you're airborne, <laughs> your, your engine will run at, at something above yeah. 2700. Oh, yeah. I don't know if go you, anywhere. Paul, if you remember that funny story the, of, the, of the shop that shall remain nameless down in Florida that installed a, a, a overhaul prop governor and, and screwed up the installation so and, and went out and ran up the engine couldn't couldn't cycle the prop and uh, the, this the IA in his infinite wisdom said well maybe it'll work <laughs> in the air let's try it let's fly it <laughs> so he took off and he overspeeded the engine to the point where there were valve strike signatures on the pistons. Oh, wow. And yeah. so the whole thing had to get torn down. And I think the yeah. shop was on the hook for, for all of that. <laughs> well, very cool. Great question, Philip. Yeah. Thanks for questioning why something, why you did something some yeah. way. You know, a lot of people <laughs> just say, okay, there goes another happy customer, but yeah. it's yeah. good to know why. Good job. No, it, it caused some arguments in our shop as well. So ah. we were trying to figure this out for a long time. <laughs> All right, get back to work. Yeah. <laughs> All, All right, right Philip. We'll see, see you. Yep. Our next question is from Richard, whose Rotax isn't behaving. Does that mean it's recalcitrant? I've been waiting all day to say that word. Go ahead, Richard. You can't spell it. <laughs> I can't spell it, but I can say it. Okay. Okay, yeah, I'm a little intimidated by company when I'm speaking with Mike and with you guys. It's oh, awesome. No. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So right now it's running fine. I'm I've been flying for the whole whole winter basically. I usually fly for an hour, you know, once once a week, uh, low and slow. That's <laughs> hmm. uh, so anyway. And so last year we were getting ready for a trip to Nantucket from from New York. And uh, we packed everything in. You know, I, I was flying before and without any problems. And all of a sudden, on the run-up, the engine started to run rough. So, you know, I opened up the cowling, checked to see everything, anything obvious. I didn't see anything. And then I started, you know, of course, we canceled the trip. But uh, then I contacted Rotax. I contacted the manufacturer. I contacted everybody that I could think of. And plus, I did some stuff myself which I'm not supposed to, but I did. <laughs> like like adjust, adjusting, synchronizing carburetors, for example. I bought the instrument to synchronize them, and I did that. Oh. Uh, and according to the manual, you know, well, I have a little background because I built the airplane Europa from the kit. So mm -hmm. I, I have a little little bit of experience with, with, with mechanics. And, and that didn't help. And then... Weather started to getting cold, and I don't know if this is, has something to do with weather being warm, but it seems relevant. But at the same time, somebody told me to check the exhaust temperatures on the on the pipes and, and compare them. And of course, I cannot do it when the engine is running because it, you know I, I don't want to get hit by the propeller. But uh, <laughs> but so what I did, I started the engine and I shut it off, and I real quick got with the with the with the infrared uh, gauge check it and one side was one cylinder was a little colder than the rest of them the exhaust mm -hmm. so i changed the spark plugs on this cylinder and started the engine and never had problems since i don't know i'm waiting for the warm weather this thing will show up again so that's the whole story so you think it runs rough in warm weather and it runs smooth in cold weather that's possible or there was something maybe that spark plug was bad the one that i changed yeah because a run-up rough on the run-up is Typically, a spark plug, right? And not yeah, it's dependent. an ignition issue. If it's on one, not the other. But if it's on both, yeah, it could be valves. That was a on lot both. of moving. Mm -hmm. Oh, it, oh, it was rough on both. Yeah, so that's not going to be ignition. So I, I actually looked. I don't know much about road taxes, but I learned a lot last night when I was researching this, and I found that your carbs, which are called Bing carbs, Bing carburetors, yeah. Bing 64 constant velocity carburetors, they have three different jets that they use at different RPM regimes. They have an idle jet, um, and then they have a main jet range, and then there's a third one that I, I don't have written here. And it sounds like the RPM range that you're in when you had that roughness was this 
Mainjet range, I think. There's a great picture on a website showing the three ranges. It shows a picture of your throttle quadrant. And as you pull the throttle through the different RPM ranges, it shows which jet is the dominant jet. And there's actually an overlap between them um, as it switches over. And it sounded like you were talking about a problem on the middle jet range. And I wondered, did you go past that to a higher RPM and did it smooth out or was it at any RPM above a certain threshold where it was rough? No, I don't, uh, don't remember exactly, but I don't think I went past 4,000 RPM. For sure, because it sounded which terrible. Which is a run I recommended. Yeah, so that, that might have been another troubleshooting thing that would isolate maybe that one jet. But the fact that it's running smooth again when it gets cold sounds like something else. I, I don't know. You, you might have had a blocked jet at that point, but there's so many different variables here, it's hard to, to pinpoint what it could be. Yeah, another uh, thing just to toss into the mix: those Bing carburetors don't don't have a mixture control. They're supposedly automatic, but there is a uh, an approved modification available that you can that 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 uh, that adds uh, mixture control to them. So. Uh, and and there's a lot of controversy over whether that's a, a, a good thing to do or a not so good thing to do, <laughs> but but it is available if it's something that you wanted to uh, experiment with, where you could where where you could adjust the the mixture on the carburetors manually. Well, that's 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 beyond my uh, expertise. <laughs> plus, I'm not I'm not a, a A and P, so I couldn't do that. No, no, no. It's not a it's not an A and P thing. It's it's just a modification that you put. Uh, on the engine and you put some extra control in the cockpit. Anyway, we're not going to solve this problem because, you know, the, the problem disappeared. So <laughs> yeah. any any suggestions, if it appears again, any suggestions, what should I look for? What kind of tests or whatever I should do? Yeah, my, my first recommendation would be to eliminate whether it's a spark plug. I mean, because that's the classic run-up issue. So if you can determine that all the spark plugs are good, which we usually do with an engine monitor, we isolate which cylinder is not operating properly if it's not firing spark plug or wires is the first. Yeah, I don't have, I only have a two, it's a four cylinder. I only have a reading on two cylinders. That's the factory yeah. thing. Yeah. So you'll know if it's those two. <laughs> <laughs> two out of four. Yeah, 50%. <laughs> yeah, I can check. I can, during the run up, I can, I can do left, right. But I remember that that didn't improve anything because that was the first thing I was thinking of too. Yeah. What and another that? thing, like you mentioned, maybe something with those jets, maybe open up those carburetors and, you know, not overhaul them, but yeah. like clean them. Yeah. Anything else? I, I would um, have a look at the fuel delivery lines. I know less than anybody here about the Rotex, but I have had a couple of friends that have had some problems with the, the hoses kinking and not delivering fuel properly. I think you would notice that airborne. I'm not real sure how that would be affected by temperature. I can imagine it would be, but I would just have a look at the delivery to the engine, to the carburetor, not just the carburetor itself, but make sure that all those supplies to the carburetor are are in good condition and flowing freely. Okay. And what about vapor lock? Maybe I didn't think about it too. Well, that's such a rare thing in a carburetor. Is it? Yeah. Well, because you you have you have a bowl, and the fuel goes into the bowl. So if there's any air in the fuel at that point, it just naturally foams to the top, and it's it's just not a concern. Now I could be totally wrong, but I don't I don't know of any vapor lock occurring in a carburetor. Now, does this have an engine-driven fuel pump? I think it would have to. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could have vapor lock, but you wouldn't normally have vapor lock during the engine run-up. I mean, we've just gotten it started. Everything's cold. Well, we think it's a fuel system problem. If it's temperature-dependent, it's very unlikely to be an ignition problem. Let us know what you find. Yeah. <laughs> We'd like to hear back if yeah. you find something. Smoking I, gun. I will, one way or another. I'll write back email to Ian. Okay. 
But hopefully it doesn't come back. That's the best yeah. solution. Hopefully right? it just doesn't come back and you don't have to fix anything. But like I said, one way or another, I will. Thank you yeah. so much. I really right. appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Our next question is from Brennan, who has an unenviable decision to make. Go ahead, Brennan. Yeah, well, thank you, guys. Um, so I own a 1981 Mooney J model that's uh, in very good condition. I bought it back in 2017, and I've taken uh, very good care of it. And I've also always had it hangered. But recently, I've had to move to a new state in the southeast, and specifically coastal South Carolina, which I know is kind of important for this question. But I've been unable to find a hangar anywhere within 60 miles of this place, actually probably even farther. So right now I'm leaving my airplane in the hangar that I have in uh, Virginia. But you know, that's 500 miles from my new location. And obviously this isn't ideal. Um, I can barely fly the airplane now due to the difficulty of, of getting to the hangar. So I've been considering uh, outdoor tie downs at a local airport and just investing in some high quality covers like you know, from bruises or something that protect the aircraft from, from prop tip to tail. But I've asked a few of my uh, fellow aircraft owners for their opinion on this, and I'm getting mixed answers from everybody. Uh, some say, no, keep it in the hangar till you find something. And then other people say, yeah, quality covers work, work fine. Um, but with the temperature fluctuations, especially in the summertime down here when it gets really hot, I'm worried about it affecting my all-glass avionics in there. I've also uh, been told to invest in heavy-duty locks uh, for the door and the throttle lock because of potential theft of those high-end avionics. Um, and then there's the issue of where to store the covers, the oil, my supplies, things like that, and then of course corrosion. So you know, after reading Mike's book on engines, uh, which I which I have, um, I know that letting an airplane sit for four to six weeks at a time is not good, but uh, sitting outside, especially down here, is not good either. Um, so I'm I'm at the point of even considering selling the airplane, which just pains me because I love the airplane. I know it well. I don't want to do that. But I also can't let it continue to sit for four to six weeks at a time. So, and by the way, I'm on the list for a hangar uh, for four years down here, and I'm now still number 39. That's crazy. So I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. I, I have the solution. You're going to love this. So what you do is you go out and buy, when I was in college, the, the car that was a total rust bucket, but would still get you back and forth, we called it a beater because it was all beat up. So you need to go buy a beater airplane that has like horrible radios, terrible upholstery, all that kind of stuff. Park it at the closest airport you can find, tie it down. Huh, don't and commute buy to your real airplane. And commute to your real airplane. There you You'll go. build flight time. <laughs> hey, I love it. I think that's the answer. I think a gyrocopter would be the, the way to go. For, because For 500 miles? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, ouch. Well, I am an airline pilot, too, so I actually can commute, and that's what I do. Oh, uh, oh well. Well, you, like, that's no you, problem, Yeah, then. you could have yeah. led with that. Come yeah. on. Oh, yeah. But, but, I mean, to address his problem directly, um, the, cover is, the covers are not going to help with the corrosion issue. Yeah. Yeah, at coastal South Carolina, the, yeah. uh, cover covering the windows will will help with the greenhouse effect in the cockpit in terms of of, of heat affecting avionics and 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 hoses. If you have to the extent if you, if you have vacuum driven anything, still hopefully you don't. <laughs> but it's not going to help with the corrosion issue, and that's the big problem you know where you're located is 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 the corrosion issue so don't put it on the ramp so no that and that, yeah. that that list is moving how how, how many hangers per year <laughs> list 39 uh, that's is there any possibility of building a hanger you know um i uh, i haven't really looked into that i i guess that's something i could look into and I am hopeful that maybe something will come up um, later this year. But I guess as a um, an add-on is is a hanger that much better because I know the warm, humid air um, could still potentially 
uh, get in. But, you know, I, I guess then that comes down to a question of, well, do I even have an airplane in South uh, Carolina? And- a hangar is vastly better. And it's really not a question of humidity per se. It's a question of the condensation cycle, which is what drives uh, the, the corrosion problem. Um, you know, if you think about it, if you if you had two cars and you park one in your garage and the other out on the driveway, you come out the next morning and the one on the driveway is covered with dew and the one in the garage is dry. Now, it's not because the air in the garage is any, is, is any less humid, because it isn't. It's because the difference in day-night temperatures is much less inside the garage than it is out on the driveway. And it's that cycling of temperatures that drives the the um, condensation cycle that's responsible for the corrosion problem. And also think about the the airplane. We particularly see this in uh, Cessnas because we have a lot of overhead with spars and things like that that we inspect routinely for corrosion. It's like a greenhouse. Sun comes up, moisture comes up, sun goes down. So anyway, you have this moisture cycle of the moisture going from the bottom to the top and circulating through and whatever it has in it is, uh, is you've just got a real, a real issue. So we see a lot of single engine Cessnas where the overhead skins just have this massive patina of corrosion. And it's not nearly as bad in, in the pipers, I don't think. Of course, you have the added complication of having a steel cabin frame attached to aluminum stuff. So now you have dissimilar metal things going on. It gets really complicated. But yeah, indoors is a big difference. Now, one thing you could do if if you do have to tie it down outdoors is you could you could treat it like annually with Corrosion X or ACF 50 or something like that and try to keep a film of, of, of um, any corrosive compound on everything. Yeah, and routine freshwater rinses. So at least, you know, every couple of weeks or a month or so, go out and give it a good wash. Yeah, because the salt water. Is, salt's going to be a problem too. Yeah, and in your Mooney service manual, I, I was introduced to a product called TriFlow. Oh, yeah decades ago my sister flew an m20j in the um, air race classic back in 1978 Uh, that's when i learned about triflow at least i think that's when it was at some point anyway it was in a mooney service manual and it is the approved lubricant for all the rod ends all the flight control rod ends on a mooney anything you see on a mooney from the outside that looks like bare metal bolts nuts all those kind of things just hit it with a little touch of triflow yeah, that's what I, that's what I use on my stuff. Yeah, really, it's, I've it's never great. heard of it. It's, it's motorcycle. Test. I think it's motorcycle stuff for uh, bicycle. But. You find it at the bicycle shop. Yeah, and you can buy it, it instead of an aerosol can. I have it in a little bottle. It has a a little teardrop end on it. You know, you can just put a little drop here and there for lubricating the bicycle chains. But it's not silicone. It's uh, Teflon, and its ability to attach and stay on the parts is way better than the silicone lubricants. And it's different than LPS too. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's totally and, and it feels different. The 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 air yeah. when you when you apply it with an with the aerosol thing through the little red thing, it it foams up. It 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 just comes out like a like a foam that just spreads everywhere and then the foam sort of collapses and it leaves a nice slippery film on everything. It's great stuff on for control cables and stuff that are. Oh yeah, and in your engine compartment, you can pop that cowling off. <laughs> that wonderful cowling. Squirt away. And uh, yeah, squirt away. Yeah. But yeah, no, uh, but an anti-corrosive compound applied uh, annually would be a really good idea if it's being going to be stored outdoors. Okay. The so I I hear I think what you guys are saying is that uh, hanger is superior for sure to outdoor, but outdoor wouldn't I, w- I wouldn't sell be, a plane yeah don't yeah, sell okay. the airplane put it outside don't, yeah don't sell the airplane anyway brennan great question yeah um good luck with that um i hope you don't can. sell the airplane don't, don't sell, sell the airplane. airplane let me know if you need help finding an m20c <laughs> yeah <laughs> or a mic <laughs> all right thank you guys okay. <laughs> thanks, thanks for, for your calling. Calling. thank you bye-bye 
Well, that's a wrap on another podcast. What did we get right? And what did we get wrong? We know we can count on our listeners to weigh in. Don't be shy. Keep sending us your tough questions and we'll do our best to get through them. You can send us questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safe and have fun. And hopefully we'll see you this July at Oshkosh. See ya. Bye, everybody.